a special show today for you, broadcasting from Clearwater, Florida. Jeff, are we having a good time here or what? The weather is great. The players are excited to be here. The coaches are uh, mulling around, giving direction and making them better. All right, so I want to ask you a question because you've been coming to spring training for years with your son. This is my first time here in Clearwater at Philly Spring Training. Well, what about when you were actually a prospect? I was I was not a prospect okay. for a prospects list. <laughs> I was never in anything. Don't you worry. What's it like for you to come down here now as your son is older? You know, you used to come down and sit on the back ball fields where we are now. Yeah, and, and, and now he works for us. Now he works yeah. for us, and we're doing interviews with different players and managers. What's that like for you? Uh, I, I think it's it's always fun to Other than making you feel it, old. It, yeah, well, You're welcome. Thanks, thanks a lot. You're welcome. I'm there. Um, as, as I've told you, and when we've talked to managers, I tend to relate to managers now as opposed <laughs> to relating to players. Um, so I actually enjoy spending time talking to the, the, the guys who run the show and, and uh, seeing what they've got in store for these guys and kind of watching them go through the, the mundane drills over and over and over again that as a uh, little league coach. I watch little kids. Yeah, you're like, I had my teams do that drill when we were watching this morning. I enjoyed seeing that. I enjoy the sounds down here, the crack of the bat, the cleats on the concrete when they're walking around. By the way, Jeff, um, you got some information that I found fascinating. How many baseballs do they bring to spring training? Well, the guy said that it was between 600 and I forget what. 685 dozen. Uh, Yeah. Well, no. The the first thing he said when we asked the the equipment guy uh, how many, I asked him how many, and he said, about 600 to 685 and then I go wow that's a lot of baseballs and then he said no doesn't doesn't yes. <laughs> and, so and then you're sitting there trying to do the calculation yeah, which I luckily we have our statistics guy who was able so to over 8,000 baseballs yeah. basically they bring down here just for spring training just for spring training we have had a blast obviously there's a lot of excitement down here with the Phillies uh, Bryce Harper's first home game here at Spectrum Field will be tomorrow he'll be hitting DH what are you looking to see while we're down here uh, just the excitement of the fans. and It's always cool to come down here and see all the uh, Philadelphia fans that come down just to, to kind of get a taste of this. And, and it just shows you it's a different sport than anything else and, and that people are getting ready for it like a month in advance. Oh, they, they definitely excited about it. They're getting prepped and the fans are here watching, getting autographs. It's totally fun to see. We had a fun first interview for the today, for the show today, though. We, we got to talk to Pedro Gomez again. Let's get to it. It's always a good time talking to him. Uh, you can hear us talk about what the Phillies did, his son in baseball, and more. Here we go. So we're here with ESPN's Pedro Gomez. Pedro, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Good to see you again. So how'd you get stuck down here? (laughs) (laughs) A guy named Bryce Harper. (laughs) I wouldn't say stuck. I am, you know, I I love what I do for a living, and uh, you'll, you'll never hear me complain about covering baseball ever. What's it been like seeing the the hoopla around the Bryce Harper signing? You know, I, I, when you step back, the Phillies already had improved themselves dramatically with their four acquisitions over the off-season. The off-season, J.T. Realmuto, Gene Segura, David Robertson, Andrew McCutcheon. I mean, those are really good moves that uh, I think the club needed in terms of taking the next step. You always need veteran players who have won before to be able to make that. And then just throwing Bryce Harper into the mix, 
puts them, in my opinion, as the the prohibitive favorites to win the NL East. You've been talking to, you've been around a lot of the spring training facilities of other teams. What what are other teams saying about what the Phillies have done, not just with Harper, but with all the guys that you discussed in the offseason? Yeah, they've been incredibly impressed with the Phillies' moves. I mean, you know, this is a club that that was 500 basically last year. I think they were 80 and 82, just under. Um, and they, they made a big leap to get from the year before to last year. And let's not forget, they were really very good up until the last six weeks or so of the season. Um, so you add those four players before Bryce Harper, and that already like was kind of eye-opening to a lot of clubs. And then all of a sudden you, you throw in Bryce Harper, and they, they're talking how the Phillies are absolutely a for-real club. Have you ever seen, we, we talked on the show a lot in the weeks of speculation about where he would sign, and obviously the age of social Everyone media did. <laughs> changes the rumors, but as as a reporter who's done this for a living for years, what's your thought on the process of reporting on the signing and the speculation? Does it make it harder for you to do your job and get facts out when so many people are just speculating? You know, I think uh, nobody truly knew where he was going to go. Nobody. There was no way anybody could say this is the team. I know the Phillies were often mentioned, but he could have easily taken the Giants offer. He could have taken that Dodgers offer, which was three years, 135, and been a free agent again at age 29. So I honestly, I, yeah, it's not easy. And I try to stay away from that until, really until you either hear it firsthand or the decision's been made because it's just so easy to speculate. It's kind of like what's going on right now with Antonio Brown. Where's he going? Oh, the Buffalo Bills. Oh, now it turns out, no, that's not the place. Um, you know, there's, there's just so many variables and possibilities that there's really no way to know unless you're inside the player's head. So where is Antonio Brown? <laughs> <laughs> not Buffalo. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's not Buffalo. I, I, you know, he's from Miami. I don't know if Miami wants to make that move. Miami really needs a quarterback more than anything. But, uh, gosh, who knows? <laughs> So we're out here at Spectrum Field. There's definitely excitement. Tomorrow is going to be Bryce Harper's first home game here. But we do often, we, are, we do a minor league show as well, and we, we focus on the development of the players. Um, you obviously have your son in a minor league system, which we'll get to in a minute. But what's your thoughts when you come to a spring training and see these guys with the excitement in their eyes and um, you know trying to chase their dreams? Does that excite you at this point still, or is it a little jaded by the professional coverage. No, I, I would say if anything, it's 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 gone to the surface for me because of my own personal situation with my son. Um, you know, I've been covering baseball for 35 years, Major League Baseball, and I truly, until two years ago, didn't have the appreciation I have for what it takes to be drafted until two years ago and seeing how difficult it is to be one of those players that's selected in the 40 rounds by whatever club. Um, it it is truly one of the most difficult things to do in all of sports because there are so many great players that go undrafted. So you come to you know a camp and you go look at the minor league side, the backfields, so to speak, and you fully realize that out of all 200-odd players that are back there, 
the reality is maybe 10 or so will ever play in the big leagues, maybe 15, but it's not a large number. So you you truly do appreciate what they're going through and how much they're putting into trying to make it. Your son is now one of those players who's playing on the backfields. Um, It it always amazes me when people who don't see what goes on on these backfields don't don't appreciate how much work goes into this. Uh. And that, you know, I've sat in minor league games with kids when my son played and kids will sit there and say about a minor leaguer, oh, that guy's no good. And you remind them (laughs) that every single one of these kids was the best kid in their town, was the the star of that. Your son is now um, in the Red Sox system. Correct. Have you gotten to see him since uh, you've been on the Florida side (laughs) of spring training? I I was actually fortunate enough, because the Bryce Harper thing has spread out so much, um, ESPN said, hey, just take a day, go down to Fort Myers and go, go see your son. So I was able to do that early in the week, and it was great. I was able to catch an inter-squad game, and he was able to get in. So, uh, you know, he's had two inter-squad innings, three strikeouts, no hits. One walk, unfortunately, but not bad. Not bad numbers. Isn't it shocking that a dad would know what his kid's exact stats <laughs> I'm, are? I'm not surprised in the least because, I mean, you still talk about your son's stats from when he was playing in Little League and, like, 13 years old. But I, do you watch the game differently? It's got to be hard as a parent. Like, you're a baseball guy. You watch the game yep. and break it down. Here, your son gets up to the plate. You get a little nervous. And just, well, he never touches a bat. He's a pitcher. <laughs> but, but he, I mean, he gets up there he's on, a the, on the mound. Yeah. Do, do you get nervous when he's out there? Do you watch it and break it down just like a baseball guy? I, I'll tell you what, Jason. To me, uh, <laughs> and I've said this, a 2-0 count is the end of the world. <laughs> he gets a 2-0 on someone. I'm, like, thinking, that's it. It's the end of the world. Uh, there is no future. Um, thankfully, he doesn't think that way. Um, yeah, of course, it's nerve-wracking. It is nerve-wracking because as a pitcher, you know, everything revolves around that next pitch, whatever that is. And, you know, there isn't a pitcher alive who hasn't given up a home run, a double, a game-winning hit, whatever. They all, you know, that's part of the job. But um, to see him succeed and to be able to raise three, you know, to rise up three levels since he's been drafted, um, hopefully there's a, there's another level there to start this season. So it's 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 nerve-wracking and exhilarating at the same time. By, by the way, your son has a great relief pitcher name, too. <laughs> I don't know if that was the plan. Rio Gomez. Jeff's yeah. <laughs> big on pitcher names. On there's, names. There's, he's no Archimedes Gamboa. And Jeff keeps tweeting about how that's the best name that there is. But you've actually, a couple of the guys that are in the Phillies minor system played with your son. Yeah. What's that like to, to come here and see guys that grew up it, with, your, with your kid? And actually, one who's on the major league roster played against him since they were about 10 years old, Scott Kingery. For real? They're, they're all from, all these kids are from the exact same area, the same neighborhood, so to speak, in the Phoenix area. So there's two high schools in the area where we live, Mountain Point and Desert Vista. So Luke Leftwich and Tyler Weiser, who were both Phillies minor leaguers, and my son were part of the pitching staff at Desert Vista High School, played against Mountain Point quite a bit. That was the big rivalry. And Scott Kingery was on that team. Cole Tucker, who's now with the Pirates, was on that team. Kevin Crone, CJ's little brother, who's in the Diamondback system, he was on the Mountain Point team. Um, there's been quite a bit of baseball player of baseball players who've come What's through. What's in the water there? I know, I know. I 
uh, it's Ahwatukee, Arizona, and I don't know what it is, but boy, <laughs> they have uh, bred some baseball players in the last decade or so. No doubt that they have. So let's get to the Phillies as they approach the beginning of the season. Um, we've broken it down a lot on the show in terms of, you know, the we look at it as the improvement in defense, uh, the improvement in terms of bats at the plate, strengthening the bullpen. How do you look at it if you're breaking down what this team has going into the season? I think what they've done is they've added men to the to the the roster. And when you look at World Series champions, you you can't have a club that is overflowing with just young players. That's that's one thing, but in terms of winning it all, you look at the clubs that win it all and they tend to have a good mix and it's more dominated by men. And when I say men, I mean guys that are either right around 30 years old or a little over 30, guys who know how to play and grind who through this game. Teach these young guys how to be professionals. Teach them how to be professionals and teach them how to win, how to win because a lot of times you get young kids and they're fantastic baseball players, but they don't know how to win. And that's that's one thing that I think the changes that the Phillies have made this offseason will benefit them the most is that they've added men who know how to win. You can't just have boys. And when I say boys, I'm, you know, I'm talking like 20, 22, 23, 24-year-olds who really don't know. They're great, but they don't know what they're doing. They, they don't, don't even know grind. how great they are, really. They, and they don't know the grind of 162 and what it takes to get to October. And that's why I think these moves will benefit the Phillies most. Now, we've talked to a lot of the minor league managers from the Phillies organization last year and we're going to talk to more this afternoon. I was surprised when I asked them what do you what do you do do you emphasize more winning or development? And we got a, a terse response back was winning is development. So that that it that part of the development process is learning how to win so that you don't just sacrifice winning for development. Um, what do you do as a first-year player in the minor leagues, and how did your son go through the process of playing that 140-plus game schedule? Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's not easy because you're you coming from either a high school or a college program. My son came from a college program where they played 60 games or so. Uh, they were able to go to Omaha one year, so they played more than that. They played close to 70 or so, but it's still not double the number, and it's not every day. You're still you still have other things that will pull you apart, whether it's going to a party on a Friday night at the University of Arizona or going to a basketball game to watch, you know, my son went to Arizona, so going to watch the Wildcats play a basketball game, um, going to school, going to class, those are all things that, that at least take your mind away from baseball, but when you're at the professional level, it's every single day, and it's not for everyone. You see a lot of first and second year players who just say, "This isn't for me," and you see them. They, you know, they retire, quote unquote, but they they basically quit. They they can't take the grind, the bus rides, the you know crappy meals, all of that. So, to me, it's always I've always always said, if you have a chance to go to college, go to college. College because you mature at college. You learn what it's like to travel with a team, um, all of those things. And so that when you do get to pro ball, the transition is easier than if you're coming straight from high school. Back in the, in the 80s, early 90s, players coming from college to make it to the major leagues wasn't didn't seem as prevalent as it does 
now. There seems to be, even though the international system seems to be bringing a lot of younger kids here, more seasoned guys like Alec Bohm, who was the Phillies' first-round draft pick last year, seem to be making it more and more these days. What do you think it is about college baseball? Is it getting them more prepared than it used to? I think the level of competition has gotten so much better. Um, you know, Scott Kingery was a teammate of, of my son's at the University of Arizona, and he rose very quickly to get to the big league level. And I Did think, he play every position there, too? Uh, he started as an outfielder, by the way. He was an out, he was a walk-on outfielder. We haven't outfielder. seen him there yet, so don't yeah, give them any ideas. He was ideas. a walk-on outfielder, wow. and his freshman year led the Pac-12 in batting, had the highest average of anybody as a walk-on freshman. So wow. he is a grinder, always has been. But I think you're, you're seeing the level of competition. Look, if you go to one of the power conference schools, SEC, ACC, PAC, Big 12, Big 10, um, you're facing really, really good competition, which is probably the equivalent of high A, maybe in some cases double A. So the transition, I think, is a lot easier. And I think that scouts are able to equate that player with, okay, instead of just projecting how good this player can be, hey, he's facing really good competition here. And he can make the jump a lot easier. So I think that is taken into account much more. And I, I think the college game has improved to that level. Going back to the big league level, if we look at the arms that the Phillies have going into this season, they've obviously strengthened their bullpen with the addition of Robertson and some other guys. Um, Sir Anthony Dominguez has a year under his belt. Hopefully Hector Neres has figured out what he had last year with the starters, Aaron Nola with the extension. Arietta seems to be healthier after the knee surgery. How do you feel like the Phillies are arms are faring heading into this season? I mean, look, you look at the NL East, and I, I, I don't think there's anybody that would say that the Nationals don't have the best one, two, three punch in, in terms of the top of the rotation. When you've got Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin, Patrick Corbin, that's that's a pretty good one, two, three. Um, but Aaron Nola has taken huge leaps where you talk, I've talked another to... Another college baseball player. Another college yeah. baseball player, but I've talked to people around the game who's view him as one of the top 10 starters in all of baseball. Aaron Nola has reached that level. Uh, the, the, he is, and, and who knows what else he can achieve because he's still a young guy. Jake Arrieta knows how to win. You know, he what he did for the Cubs, um, that, that was not smoke and mirrors. That was real, what he did. So he's looking forward. I've talked to him this whole week. Um, he's looking forward to everything because he's here from the day one of spring training, which he wasn't able to do a year ago. And he thinks that's going to translate into a much, much better season. So, yeah, as much as, as maybe they don't, on paper, appear to have the depth that other teams do overall, they've made huge strides. And it would not surprise me if they're, you know, up there in June or July and need a starter that Matt Klintak doesn't go out and grab one. I'm going to have to ask you because Jeff is a baseball traditionalist, okay? He likes pitching. <laughs> you're going to ask my question. He, yeah. I'm stealing it from uh-huh. you. He likes to see pitchers pitch full, complete games. He likes to see them go deep. Yeah, we've, we had Ron Darling on last year. And, uh, and, you know, Ron was one of those guys who would go absolutely. deep in the game. Absolutely. I Jeff covered Darling the, with the Oakland A's. <laughs> Jeff, on the other hand, is not a fan of the opener. <laughs> Yeah. 
can you talk about what you're seeing with the changes that baseball's going to in terms of how they approach pitching and, and what they're looking to do with changes? I think each club, each organization is different. Like for Tampa Bay, who used the opener more than anybody last season and was successful. They won 90 games with it. Look, it's not for everyone. I, I completely agree. Jeff but agrees. This, <laughs> it's not for But Jeff. in this day and age. <laughs> it's not for me. In this day and age where analytics deem a starting pitcher to only be able to go through a lineup twice, not a third time, you've got to try to find ways to get that pitcher deeper in the game and Tampa Bay devised this system of using the opener and look for them it worked one season um They've been playing this game almost, well, no, for 150 years because they're celebrating the 150th anniversary this year of Major League Baseball. So I think if this truly was something that was great, it would have been devised a long time ago. It may just be a phase. I, I was wondering if it's more of a fad, like you saw the Wildcat in football. Like yeah. Teams will adjust, and they'll figure out how to combat what they're doing there. Look, the Oakland A's used an opener in the wild card game last year at Yankee Stadium, and it failed horribly. When Aaron Judge clubbed that two-run shot into the seats, yeah, the score may have only been two to nothing, but for all intents and purposes, that game was over because the A's were swallowed up by Yankee Stadium at that point, and uh, it did not work. And I, I think if they had a do-over, at least manager Bob Melvin probably would have said, no, we're starting a starting pitcher on this night. Have they started, have you seen or have you heard from your son or anybody else that the pitchers that are relief pitchers, that they should also be prepared to be openers in certain situations? Because it's a different uh, mentality starting a game versus yeah. being in. One of the things we've talked about a lot of um, relief pitchers last year, once they settle into a role, a place that they know this is where I turn on my mind and start getting mentally ready for the game, this is a different situation. It is, but you know, if you're if you're a minor leaguer, you better damn well adjust to whatever they say. <laughs> right, I'll do whatever that's you tell the me. Reality, to. yeah, exactly. Hey, we need you to play shortstop today. Yeah, but I'm a lefty. It doesn't matter. You, I'm going. I'll do it. You know, uh -huh. you just say yes. You say yes to everything. So, um, yeah, as much as as you know, it may not be what they want. They're going to do whatever the club asks. All right. Uh, uh, so you see the hoopla involving Bryce Harper. Is the same going on in the, at the San Diego Padres <laughs> facility over Machado? No, not 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 on the same level. They haven't and sold three hundred and forty thousand tickets. No, which you know, which equates to about thirteen, fourteen million dollars of his contract. Because <laughs> when you think about it, you average about forty dollars a ticket. You know, take the high end, the low end, everything. It's about forty. So, three hundred forty thousand tickets times forty. You're looking at thirteen plus million dollars right there. And, and a ridiculous number of jerseys too. Yeah, and yeah. that doesn't even begin to include the beers bought when those uh -huh. people go, the parking, the hot dogs, everything. They sell beer at Citizens Bank Park. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, you're, you're talking about somebody that is going to pay for his own contract this year easily. On the other end, the Padres, no, it's not, it's not on the same level. Absolutely not. Um, but then again, I think when you look at all 750 active major leaguers, Bryce Harper stands alone when it comes to being – I like to say the marquee lead front man, so to speak, the the Mick Jagger, the Brad Pitt, the George Clooney, you know, that type of guy. 
I think he stands alone when it comes to that. As much as Mike Trout is a fantastic player, the personalities aren't the same. I'm guessing Bryce will be happy to be compared to the guys you just named. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned Mike Trout. He would um, be happy if I said Sinatra. What is okay. the reaction in baseball? I know the Angels are happy. Yeah. Phillies fans are really happy when he said, yeah, I'll be talking to somebody in two years. Um, what's the reaction on baseball around baseball when, when they hear something like that? You know, like you said, the Angels are not happy. Um, owner Artie Moreno blew a gasket and said, do something. I spoke to people in the commissioner's office, though. The reality is that there's nothing they can do. Bryce Harper, they cannot stop Bryce Harper from saying those things. Now, if Matt Klintak had said it, then there would be a penalty, a fine, maybe a draft pick taken away, something. Then there, there definitely would be discipline. But because Bryce Harper does not represent the front office, nor does any player, there is nothing baseball can do. And in a way, and I'll say this. I think part of the intrigue that the NBA has is when players start talking about where Kevin Durant's going to play next, where a Russell Westbrook could end up. And if that helps people talk about baseball, which we've been doing since Harper made those comments about Mike Trout, what's the harm there? What what really is bad about it? As a it? Phillies fan, I find no harm at all. No, and, and Jeff Angels, wanted Trout look, here Angels anyway. Angels fans think it's tampering and whatnot, but what is? there's no tampering. It's not like Bryce Harper can say, do this. Yeah, I, I, look, having Bryce Harper here could could be great for Mike Trout, but if Mike Trout's coming here, it's going to be because one, the money, and two, because he grew up here. I mean, it, this is a, this is a guy who's got easy Eagles season tickets, and you yeah. can't see him, can't see an Eagles game without seeing him on the. He's side got line. more footballs from touchdowns yeah. than I think some <laughs> exactly. of the players do. Yeah. <laughs> it's so before we let you go, let, let's look at the lineup a little bit now. They, they've obviously got a very different lineup with Segura coming yeah. over. Um, their defense will have Hoskins back at first base Harper will be out do you think Harper will play in in left right or center where do you think I, I think he play? probably stays in right in I right? think McCutcheon probably goes to left um and a double in center and, yeah that? and Herrera in center um I, yeah, McCutcheon now is is a corner outfielder. He's no longer a center fielder, I think. And that's not a knock on him. That happens to a lot of center fielders. They move to the corner eventually. So um, uh, it's it's a that's a solid, solid outfield. I know that Harper's, if you had to poke one hole, it would be defense. That would be the weakest part of his game. But um, You didn't see the Phillies defense last year. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's it's... Look, Segura's going to help shore up the defense up the middle. There's no doubt about Real that. Real Muto should help that catcher. Real Muto lot. is fantastic. You, I think when you've Phillies moving Hoskins out of the outfield and putting him back at his you, natural, his natural position, position yeah. exactly. You've seen Real Muto develop yeah. as somebody who's covered this. What should Philly fans know? Because you <laughs> hear about what we're getting, and sometimes as a Philly fan, you think it's too good to be true when you hear uh, stuff like that. I think if you ask front office people, you know, GMs and managers, to rank catchers. Real Muto's either going to get a first or second place vote, probably from the other 29 clubs. On both sides of the ball. Exactly. Yeah, Real Muto is the real thing. He is, uh, I mean, think of Chooch, and that's maybe a little bit better than Chooch. All right, last, last question. What are the Marlins doing that they have given up? <laughs> All of, I mean, if you put together all of the talent that they have given up in yeah. the last two years between Stanton and Yelich and Real Muto, and you can go on and on, 
what's the plan? Because the prospect hall, other than Sixto Sanchez in the latest deal, hasn't been great. Uh, they're hitting reset. Look, they, they, they had some contracts that were unsustainable. I think the moment Giancarlo Stanton signed that deal, he was writing his ticket out of Miami because there's no way that a franchise like that could afford the $325 million contract. So he was basically writing his ticket out of Miami. Um, They're hitting reset, and they're hoping that they can develop some minor leaguers to to help them get back into contending. But you look at it right now, and the cupboard the cupboard is quite bare. It's uh, it's got to be an interesting season, uh, and we can't wait. To I think the National it. League is going to be fun. It seems like the National League no, got no, a lot you've better. You've got like thirteen clubs that you could say that team could end up in the World Series. The East is going to be better. You got four. Look, the Central there from one through five. I don't think there's a better division top to bottom in terms of being equal. Yeah, the Brewers are going to be really good. The Brewers are really good, but the Reds have improved themselves. Look, they they added Tanner Rourke. They added um, Alex Wood. They've added Sonny Gray to their rotation. And Sonny Gray, I think, will become the Sonny Gray of Oakland again now that he's out of New York. Not everybody is built for New York. That pressure is, you know, you got to be a special type of player to handle. It's just not built for everyone. It's not, not everyone's built for it, I should say. Um, You know, Castillo, the young pitcher they that they have in their rotation, Rysel Iglesias is a top-notch closer for the Reds. So they uh, they 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 have definitely improved themselves, and and the Pirates have really good pitching. I mean, they it, who knows who's going to win the Central in the West? The Padres have have finally made the step of we're going to try. Um, you know, that's, their that's, minor league system scares is, me. Well, it's, yeah, Tatis Jr. When Fernando Tatis Jr gets up, he is going to be a lights-out shortstop, and that's going to be fun to watch. So That'll be a fun left side of the infield for them. With and the right side. And right side, yeah. Because you've got Hosmer at first, who's a gold glover. Mm-hmm. Look, eventually, uh, Kinsler's there this season, but eventually uh, Luis Urias is going to move to second base, who's a potential gold glover. He's 21 years old. Tatis at short and Machado at third. If you're a pitcher, you've got to love that infield because the defense is there's potentially, as a scout told me, that's four gold gloves right there. Wow. Wow. Well, we can't thank you enough for yeah, the time. My we pleasure. always enjoy talking to you. Hope to catch up with you again during the season and best of luck to your son out there. Go right. him on. Thank you very much. Thanks so Thanks much, Pedro. Thanks, guys. It was great talking to Pedro Gomez, not just to talk about what's going on with the excitement and the Phillies organization and the minor leagues, but also to talk about his son. And uh, now it's time to talk to some Somebody who's the director of player development for the Phillies, Josh Bonifay. We are here with director of player development, Josh Bonifay. We are out here at Spectrum Field here in Clearwater this morning. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing outstanding. It's a beautiful day in Clearwater. It's a little chilly the last few days, but today's is outstanding. How, how could you not be doing good? Do you get just get excited at this time of year? Is it like Hope Springs Eternal for you? Yeah, I mean, it, it, just being in Florida, uh, Florida's uh, it's like the perfect city it's like the perfect state but like Clearwater is a perfect city it's got the beach it's got baseball it's just phenomenal um I was very fortunate as a kid to be in Bradenton a long time with my dad was the GM with the Pirates so I spent a lot of time in Bradenton and, and around the the St. Pete Tampa the area so very familiar with it and absolutely love just waking up in the morning and, and being on a baseball field I love it so what's it like to grow up doing this watching your dad do it and now to be doing it yourself 
I mean, you know, I I always tell everybody I'm, I'm always very humbled. I'm very honored just to be a part of the game of baseball because of my grandfather was a minor league GM for 27 years. And then my dad, you know, he was a, a scouting director. He was assistant GM and, and then a GM. And like it's a kid in a candy store. Like I have lived a dream literally since I was four years old. And there's not too many people in the world that can actually say that. I have lived like on a baseball field my entire life. Um, and I make a living evaluating players, getting to hang out with players, teaching players the game of baseball, and being a part of, of young kids' lives. So I, there's nothing better and there's nothing greater than being out here and, and being able to do that. And to follow in my father's footsteps, I mean, that's a, it's a phenomenal man. You know, you go through the game and people talk about him and you're just like, you're in awe because of like the things that he's done, but not the things because he's done, it's just the type of person that he is. And I always want to live up to, to him and his expectations, but I, I mean, I am my own person, but my father's a, a great role model and I couldn't be more thankful uh, for him and what he's done. You've had the chance to coach in the minor leagues, to go through the system, a lot of people just see major league teams. They don't see all of the stuff that we're here looking at now, the hundreds of hours that people are digging into the dirt trying to block a ball, all of that stuff. How important is it spring for spring training for these guys? It's, it's extremely valuable and it's extremely important. Um, it's, you know, the standards in which we're trying to train our men to play baseball. It's the character that we're trying to build. It's the culture in which, you know, is an organization we're trying to push. Uh, it's the classroom settings. It's the, the, the different types of practices, the on-field preparation. Uh, staff members are here anywhere from 4.30 and they stay at night, sometimes 8 or 9 o'clock. Uh, diving into video, diving into some of the research, diving into some of the numbers just to give a player the better chance to succeed and for him to like have the opportunity to play in the big league. So not a lot of things that you see and a lot of things go behind closed doors in this building and uh, you know this organization our coaches like they love the they genuinely love the players they genuinely love the process and want to see our players succeed with all the different experiences that you've had from your family legacy in the game to your own legacy in the minors coaching how's that prepared you for this new responsibility here with the Phillies um, I, like I said I'm just honored like to be able to sit in like on a couch and then watch my dad go through meetings even though like everybody thought I was not listening at a younger age I like I'm watching and evaluating and listening don't worry Jeff feels that his son is never listening when he coached too so you're not alone there but I mean you'll be surprised like at the things you pick up on the things that you watch how he communicated how he ran meetings and and like it's really you know like I said, I'm very fortunate but you know I was able to sit on a lot of those meetings I was able to sit in and just kind of be part of the furniture and kind of the background but it helped me prepare a lot. It helped me prepare with staff. It helped me create relationships with people. It helped me understand how to create relationships and, you know, separate the line between, like, having to not tell people what to do, but, like, scheduling type things and getting our staff on board in kind of a cohesive unit. You spent, you spent time with Houston before you were with the Phillies organization. Houston is one of the teams that's been kind of a pioneer in developing analytics. What have you taken from there and brought over to the Phillies, and what did you see that the Phillies already had that you could build upon? I, you know, the, the Phillies, like when I got here, 
Like some people think it was just still like they were behind, but we're not behind. Like we're actually like moving forward very rapidly, and our R&D group is phenomenal. It's one of the largest in baseball um, right now, and it will get bigger. But you know, with with Houston, the way they did things, it was weren't afraid to fail, weren't afraid to push certain aspects of analytics and to actually find out, do some testing, find out what works, what doesn't work, and then keep pushing the envelope. So that was the thing that, you know, over here you bring is, hey, we're going to do some things that may fail, but we're going to find answers and we're going to find out, like, how to implement these types of things when I came over. But our staff is unbelievable. Well, you you just used a phrase that I have never heard in baseball, which is R&D. Oh, yeah. I've, heard, I've heard it in chemistry. <laughs> uh, so, so tell us a little about what what R and D is here. No, it's just it's 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 our it's our analytic staff, um, and they do a, they dive into research. They div- they dive into helping like with that research to help us develop on the field. So, let's say a specific. If there's a certain type of play that happens a lot in the big leagues. Um, and we want to practice that in the minor leagues. They are going to help find us all the information for that type of play so we can use it on and practice at game speed in the minor leagues. So they're doing a lot of research of everything that takes place in the big leagues so we can help our players develop in the minor leagues. But it's it's a group of, of tre- I mean, tremendous people um, that spend a lot of hours digging through all the, all the numbers and data. When you were in Houston's minor league system, you had a team that had 13 players that are now in the majors, including Alex Bregman. What's it like to to deal with such talent? I mean, obviously here with the Phillies, you've got different talent of all levels here in camp. What's it like when you have that as a manager and as a professional? 2015 you're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, it was one of the greatest years uh, in development that you know, to be a part of, like, to lead that team, you know, with Bregman and Fisher, um, you know, Musgrove. I mean, it just kept on and on and on with, with all the all the types of players. But to be a part of that, you just want to get them all to work together. And that's the part of, like, developing and managing uh, to find their certain skill sets with so many different types of players. Like, Bregman needed to work on a backhand or Bregman needed to work on a certain type of play. So when they're that gifted, you have to just kind of, like, single out a skill set that he needs to work on and hammer that away, and then he becomes even better. And like, you know, with Fisher, it may have been throwing throwing the baseball. Like, he held it as a cutter grip instead of a foreseen grip. Now he has more carry on his ball. But it's just finding the little things. When they're that special of an athlete and that gifted, you find the little things that really – finish make the finished product um and just i mean i was blown away by the the amount of talent that we had that year and it's just kind of get them going in the direction in the good direction and getting them to buy in um to that and it's really about cultivating like relationships and capturing the moment in which like each day in looking at the minor league managers it seems like most of the managers have moved up one level is, is there a method to that to keep the managers kind of growing with the players or is it just it's time for them to move to a next level? There's, I think there's a delicate balance when you're talking about managers. I think as an organization, we have to find the right people for the right the right level and, and our prospects, depending on like how they play, what positions they play, what the manager was as a as a player and a teacher. And it's more about like what does our managers do for each type of group of players that you foresee like these players going. So if 
if you said Sean Williams is going to Double A this year, like, but if next year we needed Sean Williams in Lakewood, like, it's not a demotion, and it's not that he didn't do a good job. It's as an organization, we want to find the like our best people, best managers in the right situation. Like each one of our managers is very, very qualified. They're very good at what they do, and they're very special, and they're unique in what they do. Some have a little more experience than others, but like it is not a certain spot that we put managers just because, hey, we're going to move you up because you've been in A ball for three years. That's not the point. Our point is to find the best person to lead that group of players. Going around last summer talking to the managers and the teams, we, we noticed a lot about the leadership skills that the managers had. It seems like that's a focus of the organization in terms of not just preparing these players for on the field, preparing them to be professionals off the field too. Can you talk about the overall development of players, not necessarily on the field? We talk balls and strikes all the time. But a lot of these guys are young guys who are growing up. It's their first time in an experience like this. How is that something that you and obviously depend on the managers to help cultivate and help them move forward? Well, as a group of staff members, like we have a responsibility to, to like create men, uh, create good people for society, and actually help them become better parents, better teachers when they, whenever they want a job. So it's not necessarily, yes, we want to get them to the big leagues, and we want to, not every one of them is going to get to the big leagues, but we understand the magnitude of our jobs and like being role models for these kids and that's a part of our business where if we can help them develop a, another language if we can help them just be make better decisions on and off the field if we can help them uh, you know be better parents when the time is right then I think that's very important in our, in our development of the kids and as an organization it's so our I, responsibility to be good people so I, I noticed when when talking about development when we talked to all your managers last year in the minor leagues and the same look is on your face almost like like a father proud of what they're doing with these guys and being able to to give your experience to them do you have the a sense of almost being like another father figure for the, for a lot of these guys yeah I, I mean i believe we have the responsibility to touch lives like we have I absolutely like want to get to know the kids. I want to get to know who they are and make sure that we give them every tool necessary, every resource necessary to be big league players, but also be good people. And like, that's just who we are. That's our culture here. Um, and it's a family. And that comes all the way, you know, from Middleton and and David Montgomery and all of our group, you know, the Bucks. Like, it, it doesn't stop. Like, their leadership helps our leadership and it helps push our culture throughout the whole system. So there's there's a problem there's a problem that we thought about that may not be a problem for you, but we wanted to ask you about it, which is you now have there apparently there was rumors there were some signings this week for the Phillies, which creates guys that are going to be here for hopefully for a long time at the major league level. Does it impact the, the younger guys, the guys that are at, especially at double and triple A, feeling that maybe there isn't a place for them, or or do they do you guys teach them in such a way that they just know day to day keep working? Yeah, it's it's all about teaching them to be the best player they can be. Um, and if there's certain spots because of a signing like Rice Harper, um, but our player is extremely good, like we're going to find a place for them to play. Like regardless of Bryce Harper, if he's one of our best players, we're going to move him around the field to make sure that our organization is very successful for the long haul. 
Um, but you just want to teach the players the right skill set, the individual skill set, and you want to teach them the game of baseball to the best of our ability and give them the, the tools necessary to succeed at the big league level. There's a lot of other teams that, like, if we teach them the right way and they're very good players, then other other teams will reach out. And then if it's a right fielder that we're that's really good in our minor league system and you know, we know what we have at the big league level, then there's also changes that can happen when they inquire about our players. You mentioned Bryce Harper, and he's obviously not the only big name that was signed this season, but the thing that I enjoyed, like the first day he was here, you saw the pictures of him out there talking with Mickey Moniak. You've got JT Real Muto. You've got these guys who have been professionals in the league. What's the impact on the younger players, not for their own professional future in terms of is there room for them at the big league roster, but for their own development to be able to sit in a dugout and pick the brain of somebody who's been to the all-star game and had all this success while these guys are chasing those dreams anytime you can learn from all-stars is is a huge impact anytime that they can share information share their like their experiences is huge for our younger kids uh, playing at the big league levels is extremely difficult and when you perform like we you know we signed five all-stars like the knowledge that they have and being able to share the wealth with our younger players is not only going to help like our players get there faster because um, you you want all your players to get to the big leagues as fast as you can but the the culture in which is established from Gabe and that group of knowing what it takes to win and knowing what it takes to prepare day in and day out and to be all-stars successful all-stars is huge for our players to see morning you know day in and day out when they show up well we really appreciate you joining us we know you got a lot of work to do so we're going to let you go back to your right. your day job and uh, we hope to see you around the minor league parks and yes, sir. Thank best you. of luck thank with you the very Phillies much for thanks me. for being here yeah I really appreciate the conversation have a great one thank you it was great to talk to Josh Bonifay here about all the things that they're going to be doing in the system here about where he came from and what experience he brings here it's going to be interesting to see what he does with the Phillies as they go forward with their talent Next, we got an interview with David Parkinson, who was the Paul Owens pitcher of the year in the Phillies system. Really a guy that's made a name for himself and an underspoken voice, but somebody who I think you'll enjoy hearing from. Here we go. We are here with pitcher David Parkinson. David, how you doing today, man? Not bad. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about what it's like coming to spring training this year after the experience that you got last year out here. Uh, it honestly, it's about the same. Um, I think that the thing I did really well last year is I tried to keep the even keel and try not to let things get too high or too low. Um, so coming in with the same expectations, not trying to focus on results, but trying to focus on like what I can do to get better. In the offseason, did you give yourself a break? I mean, you had such success last year. Did you kind of rest on it for a little bit before you got back to it? Or what's your routine like? I mean, I wouldn't consider it a break. I took I took a little bit of time off from throwing to rest my arm, but that's that's something more for health reasons than like uh, accomplishment. Um, but that, that first few weeks I was back, I just kind of laid low for a little bit, let my body like kind of catch up. I, like You asked if I hit a wall. I guess that was when I hit my wall once I got out of the season and everything kind of relaxed. I really felt uh, fatigued, I guess, after that. Um, so that's that's where I kind of took my time and just relaxed. And after my body caught back up, I, uh, I picked it up and got back after. That's when the adrenaline rush from the season wore off a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I think that's probably what it they're was. They're like, yeah, I just did this all yeah. season. I don't know if it was just that or if it was just everything caught back up to me. It was like, hey, you just pitched, what, 130 innings. How's your body feel now? So so, so you're a Virginia boy growing up. And I saw a previous interview. You said you were an Orioles fan and you watched Cal Ripken a lot growing I up. Did. Um, I wasn't, I didn't you, you watch a lot of sports when I was younger. I was incredibly ADD. So, I mean, my parents always had sports on. I mean, like, I remember watching football all the time, but 
I, I can look back in my life now and I remember like watching football. I never got past like the first quarter because I would want to go outside and play. Um, I just couldn't sit still. Um, since then, I think about like mid high school, I started watching baseball more. Um, but I remember like watching the Orioles. I was a big, big fan of the Orioles. And the Nationals came around, and of course, I was born right outside of DC, so unintentionally, we're a Nationals fan. Um, so you can talk to Bryce about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I guess I can. <laughs> Wait, so so you said that you don't like to sit still? Yeah, no. So so you're a pitcher, but you you're only going to pitch five once every five days. That's 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 where it's tough. That's um, the irony of this, huh? Yeah. So sitting in the dugout is definitely one of the more tough things to do um, because. You want to find something to do. You don't uh -huh. want to sit there. Um, but I, honestly, I think I found my uh, my inner peace and in actually looking at the game more and actually paying attention to things. Because even though I may not be doing anything with my body, I'm still trying to learn while I'm out there, while I'm just watching the game go on. It may be something small, but just you know, keeping an eye on everything that's happening. Is there any causing any mischief in the dugout? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Like what? Just messing around with each other. Yeah. I mean, got to keep it light. Uh huh. You got to have you're fun with, with each other. With somebody for what a hundred and. 40 games yeah. this season, so you're going to have to have some You fun. lose track at this yeah. point with all the yeah, time you, you guys spend. Who was the biggest prankster on your team last year biggest from Clearwater? Prankster. From Clearwater? Yeah. I don't know if we really had, uh, I mean, Betty. Ben, Bettencourt's pretty, pretty, uh, he pulls a shenanigans. He like, pulls a joke yeah. every once in a while. Yeah, he does. What's it like you, uh, growing up, you, you almost made it to the Little League World Series, a couple mm -hmm. games away. What's it like to have some of that success growing up before you even got to college? We'll get to what you got there, but you, you reach levels that people don't get to as a young man. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't really remember much about that season. Um, I, it's, hard for, it's hard for me. Like, I remember, like, obviously, like, the results. I remember everything that happened, and I remember, like, certain points in the season that kind of turned things around. Um, but first off, I wasn't a pitcher back then. I was a position player, played outfield. Um, so, I mean, it, it's just different. Um, but you definitely you learn how to win from that age. Um, I could go a little bit deeper into that, but I'd rather not about things, the, the participation and everything like that. Like, my, my dad taught me that participation wasn't wasn't what you do you play to win and you don't get rewarded if you don't win that's what my dad taught me so you don't have a bunch of participation trophies participation. jeff loves to hear that by the way you just put a big smile on his face yeah. yes um, you now have another fan you, you do have another fan how did you end up going from the outfield to pitcher Ooh, i think it was middle school um my first year in middle school i, I always pitched too but i was like I spent more time in the cages than I did working on pitching or anything like that. Obviously, I worked on pitching too, but um, I really switched over. I think it was my sixth grade year um, when I found out that everybody else was growing a lot quicker than me um, and I wasn't fast enough to play in the outfield anymore. Um, but I still I still had a decent arm, and I could still still pitch a little bit, so I really focused on that. Yeah, I'd say you um, have a decent arm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I, back then, you'd be surprised, actually. I was usually about, about every single level I was at, I was always one of the softer throwers. Um, so that, that, I guess that taught me how to pitch in the long run. But, but doesn't that also serve as a benefit? It because, does, Because if you know you're not blowing kids away, you get to do something. As somebody who coached a little bit of little kids, mm -hmm. it, it always amazed me the kid that throws hardest doesn't learn how to pitch. Yeah, um, they just send them out there to oh, throw yeah. hard. No, that that definitely that, that that 
taught me how to pitch, taught me how to throw off speed in the zone. Um, not not in middle school, but like come come high school age, I I, I relied more on my uh, my command and my off speed pitches and being able to throw in any count. So that that definitely taught me how to pitch. All right. So you, you said that you finally got to to wind down a little bit after the season. What what does David Parkinson do in the off season to to relax? I do a lot of things. Um, I like to stay outside yeah. more than anything. Um, I, like I said, still still don't want to be inside for a long time. Um, obviously, you got those nights where you just want to watch movies and stuff. But uh, I actually I did a lot of hiking with my girlfriends. Uh, visited my brother out in Vegas and did a lot of hiking out there too. Um, did you get to do any fishing? No, actually. Uh, once I come down here is when I fish. Uh, but. Uh, I mean, when I go back to Virginia, if I go back to Virginia, like in the in the off season, about like winterish time, I can do some like striper fishing up there. Um, but I, I'm not back for long enough because I go back to Mississippi actually for workouts and stuff. Um, so, so do you have a Cole Irvin made pole? No, I don't. He, so, I, so, I believe he's a fly fisher, right? So, so he makes all kinds of fishing rods. Okay. Apparently, apparently, we when we interviewed him last season, he said he made one for Charlie Manuel in his hotel room. And so you may All want right. to hit him up and I, I see, if, yeah. see if he can get you a nice fishing rod. He's <laughs> apparently really into I believe it. he has a brand now. It's the Swervin brand. Yeah. yeah. He's out there uh-huh. making I'll it. I'll have to look at that. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a good time. So what's it like for you to carry on the Mississippi legacy? You played your college ball there. Obviously, some special experience for mm-hmm. you. What's it like to take that forward now? It's awesome. Um, mostly because I believe... I believe that where I played, not just at Mississippi, but honestly in the SEC, kind of prepared me for this. Um, not not in the fact that you know other conferences don't have talent out there, but it's the it's the fact that every single weekend you're out there and you're you're you got to play your best or else you're going to get smacked around. So um, I think that really taught me how to play in professional ball because you know you're playing with guys who are incredibly talented all the time. And one of Jeff's favorite questions is, what's your favorite walk-up music would be? But you actually had a walk-out music from the bullpen at mess right yes i did um and that's actually that's actually stuck with me it's uh, when the levee breaks by led zeppelin that's always been my, my how'd you end up with that you know when i was a f- sophomore at Ole miss um i knew that you had a walk out song so i, I was kind of like just listening around like trying to find you know songs that would like kind of like get me going a little bit and i ended up hearing that i've always been a fan of led zeppelin i I listen to a lot of different music um and that one kind of like got me like tingling a little bit so i was like this is the one and sure enough it's a great song to walk out to all right so what what would be on your top five playlist get ready for a game that's a tough question. Uh, Uh-oh. Like we really, asked the hard-hitting really one. That really is a tough question. That, that can vary. I mean, it depends yeah. on my mood, honestly. Um, I mean, it can vary from country, hard rock, uh, Christian music, all like all over the spectrum. Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. So you change it from game to game? It, yeah. Um, they're, they're, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I change it from game to game. What's it like? I've, I've seen you talk in prior interviews about maintaining your focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your routine like? Obviously, there's focus in-game, and then there's that five-day routine in between starts. And you, you mentioned not wanting to sit around. Mm-hmm. How do you get focused and incredibly, get yourself ready? Incredibly strict. Um, every single day, So what, say, say I'm on a six-man rotation. Every single day was the same. So you know, the following day after my start, um, I'd get my running in or actually do my dry work, throw, get my running in, go upstairs, and I'd lift. Um, as soon as I was done lifting, go down for BP, finish BP up, um, and, and 
following day, uh, I had a bullpen, and it would be the same exact thing, but I'd have my bullpen, then I'd run, then I'd lift. Um, and, and like it wasn't it wasn't just like the same thing every day but like I kind of as long as like the times were the same most games are about seven o'clock I, I got to the field the exact same time ate at the exact same time everything was just on the schedule um, I'm I'm weirdly OCD I'm OCD about my own schedule I'm not OCD about like cleanliness I'm OCD about time and stuff um, and <laughs> your roommate won't be happy to hear that huh? <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not messy by any means but but I'm not like good correction I'm not like you know everything's folded perfectly and all mm-hmm. that but um no, I'm, I just I just want to be like I want to feel the exact same every time I go out, and I think that that's what that creates. How do you maintain the same schedule with all the travel that you have to do? So if you're on if you're on a bus for 13 hours, how do you, how do you maintain a routine? Show up at the field at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're on the bus, but I mean, what I do outside the field isn't the same thing that I do in the field. Okay. Um, so I mean, when I'm on the road, it's a little bit different because you know you got to lift at different times. Right. You got to put, but you still have the same schedule. So I mean, um, I may miss a lift. I may miss a lift. Like, say, say I started, then we travel. I may miss the lift the following day, but I'll pick it up that the day afterwards, and I'll keep going from there. What whatever you're doing is obviously working. Um, last year, you were named the Phillies minor league pitcher of the year. What was it? like to go to Citizens Bank Park and, and, and kind of walk around and have that introduction? It was really cool. Um, it was a really cool experience. Uh, you know, the one thing I realized, like, the, the further I've gotten into pro ball, I guess, is that when I was younger, you kind of almost, like, idolize those guys and, and see them as something so untangible. Um, and the closer you get, the, the more you realize that and the less, I guess, hype comes. I don't want to say hype because, obviously, it's big leagues, but um, the, the, the end goal doesn't seem as far away. Um, and it's comforting and scary at the same time because you don't want to get comfortable. Um, but just going to keep doing what I'm doing. You obviously had a ton of success last year, as you mentioned, but you moved a lot. You moved from Williamsport to Clearwater. You moved up to Lakewood. What was that like for you to have such change and, and continue to have that same stability and success? Um, I actually I talked to somebody about this before. Um, the biggest difference I saw was in my own mental state. Um, when I moved to Clearwater, when I came out of the bullpen the first game, I didn't have time to think, so I just pitched. Um, but the following I was my first start, and, and, I, and I built it up in my head way too much. I, you know, I thought that making a jump up was going to make a huge difference in talent level and the speed of the game and everything, so on and so forth. So I put it in my head that these guys are going to be like 10 times better than absolutely like, like, like basically this is a different level. So these guys are way better. And, and, it's, and by doing that, I created a problem in my own head saying, you got to pitch better to beat these guys instead of just continuing to do what I did. Um, and I didn't, I didn't do bad in that game, um, but it definitely wasn't my best. And like looking, looking back in the results, they went bad. But in, in the in the process, uh, in the process of the game itself, it was pretty bad for me. All right, final question. Last year, who was your favorite manager? Favorite manager? Oh, oh that's a tough one. You're going to make him call it out, Jeff. That's not fair. <laughs> I love that's that. the right answer. That's the right answer. No, we, we, we've loved following. Not borders might be a good answer, too. Yeah, we got borders coming up a little bit later. Okay. But uh, it's we wish you the best of success continued because it's been fun to watch you continue to grow as a pitcher and really figure out you know how you want to pitch the game and how you want to work it. So we appreciate the time and, and look forward to continuing following you as uh, you keep moving through the system. Appreciate that. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks y'all for having me.
Thank you, everyone, for joining us this week on The Heart of Sports. Make sure to join us next Friday night and every Friday night here on 610 ESPN. It's The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen. Have a great week. Bye-bye.